0: The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Ray Senewald. Welcome, Ray.
1: Thanks,
0: Max. It's great to have you. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll let you introduce yourself. I, the topic that I'd like for us to discuss today is about continuous integration and DevOps in software and businesses, uh, a topic near and dear to your heart and my heart, too. <laughs> but hopefully for many others. Hopefully. <laughs> For our audience that don't know you though, do you mind introducing who you are, what you're up to?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Ray. I work at Box uh, as a senior software engineer, but specifically with build and release, uh, the build and release team for applications engineering. So my team helps manage a lot of the different uh, infrastructure, tools, automation, all that kind of good stuff that's uh, involved for building our products, uh, as well as releasing them and uh, testing them and all the kind of stuff that happens in between. So, for those that aren't too familiar, you know you're writing code, but to get that code to actually get shipped, there's a lot of different pieces that are involved there. If you want to ship uh, reliable, good quality code very frequently, which is what every successful company is trying to do, um, so in a nutshell, that's kind of what I what I do right now.
0: Uh, a topic common to all of our episodes <laughs> on the Excel Engineer is asking our guests about how you got into software engineering. How did you get into software engineering? Yeah,
1: sure. So um, I kind of always liked computers growing up. Um, And when I was in college, uh, I had gotten my first tech job as like a desktop support. And uh, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. And uh, through, through a friend of mine had recommended information systems. And that was kind of a logical path for me at the time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I dabbled in HTML when I was really, really young. And um, got a degree in information systems and then was looking to be a systems administrator. And through happenstance at the company that I was at, there was no opportunities for systems administrators, but there was an opportunity for a build engineer. Um, I had dabbled a little bit in coding at that time, had no idea what a build engineer was, did not know anything about the software development lifecycle or anything like that. Um, But the hiring manager knew me and uh, had recommended me for the position. I applied for it. Uh, got hired for it, and then uh, figured out very quickly what a unit test was, what an end test was, and uh, it was a big learning curve, but uh, kind of went through the reins there, and uh, eventually managed a team uh, at that company, built, built out the team, managed the team, we handled basically what you would call engineering tools, productivity engineering, build and release, there's so many different names for these kind of teams um and then um had transitioned to my new position now uh no longer being a manager back to an IC route uh but doing the same kind of
0: work mm-hmm. fair enough for drawing a concrete i guess metaphor between what the types of teams you've worked on in software engineering companies looks like and maybe what our layperson person who hasn't worked at a software company uh what is build and release like what why is why is this such a big deal, deserving of its own team?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I mean, there you can you what 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 you find is you find a lot of developers that are working on the code itself, but you do need somebody who can help make sure that that code gets tested properly and ends up going going through everything that you that you need it to do to be able to get it released. And you don't want an engineer to spend their cycles doing that kind of stuff, and usually they don't want to do that either. There's also a lot of different moving parts. There's QA, there's release management. um, There's, you know, every aspect of the development lifecycle you kind of need to be familiar with as a build and release engineer um, because you're kind of you're interacting with kind of every single piece of that and not to say that a software developer doesn't or QA doesn't um, but I think uh, that's one of the things that I would say as a build and release engineer you kind of have to know a little bit about everything because you end up running tests uh, that are QA's tests against the product and you kind of have to know how to install the product to be able to test it you got to know how the tests run to be able to run them you got to be familiar with the systems administration background to be able to troubleshoot different kinds of issues um, so you kind of need to be almost like a jack of all trades, so to speak. You don't necessarily have to be, uh, super, you know, the best guy at writing an algorithm or something like that, but you kind of have to know a little bit about everything I feel like.
0: Over the years of your career, you've probably seen a lot of tools, maybe come and go, maybe some that have stuck around a while. <laughs> yeah, for Sure. <laughs> What are, what are some of the traits of the software that, or tools that are ending up in your toolkit that uh, you're optimistic about and really looking forward to seeing you know, very broad adoption among tech companies?
1: yeah sure so i think one of the things that a lot of at least companies that i've seen have struggled with is being able to make sure that the way that a developer is testing their product on their local machine is the same as it is in production getting it as close as possible to that like i mean it's almost cliche at this point but the number of times i've heard it works on my machine and it's like (laughs) oh man whatever we can do to, to try to get rid of that so i mean uh I recall, I mean, it's been probably five years now, going to different conferences and hearing all this talk about Docker. I had no idea what it was at the time. And I'm like, this must be important. It's like at every single talk, uh, somebody is bringing up this term. And I had never really heard much about containers or anything like that. Um, But once I started using it at our organization, I realized, oh my gosh, like this is awesome. No longer do I have to worry about installing Python on these different VMs or Ruby or anything like that. I can embed it with my applications code and then... If I run it in that container on my machine, it's going to work the same theoretically everywhere else, so long as uh, the container engine is written properly and you've actually put all your dependencies in there properly. Uh, so that's the one that has gotten me probably the most excited out of any tool that I've seen or any uh, piece of technology that I've seen for a while. Um, beyond that, I think anything that can help you get your configuration and code is something that was always awesome to me. So it used to be Puppet. Uh, That was pretty cool uh, back when I didn't know anything else, and then I think not because of the tool itself, just because we didn't know what we were doing, Um, kind of ran ourselves into a wall, didn't do things too well, (laughs) and then uh, found other tools that could do the same kind of thing, but a little bit bit easier, so now other tools like Ansible are things that we've begun to adopt. Uh, That one's pretty awesome to me, supports getting better and better, so my team handles macOS, Windows, and Linux, Um, our company builds products for all the different platforms. Um, And so Ansible is a tool that can support all of those platforms to have all of your dependencies that you need on VMs uh, into code, which is is pretty nice. Uh, One other thing I'll touch upon as well is people might be a little bit confused if they're familiar with the technology, like, well, why would you install dependencies directly on a VM if you just talked about a container which can get rid of that? Uh, the unfortunate reality is doing builds for iOS and for desktop applications, you kind of need the actual desktop operating system uh, to be able to, to do those kinds of things. I don't know of a way of doing Xcode builds in Docker yet or uh, uh, MS build or anything like that.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I think the backstory for a lot of our audience that might be missing is the storied history of virtualization. And this includes stuff like the invention of Java, for example. Java being a programming language that uh, builds code to be ran by a virtual machine on top of an operating system, right. which is on top of hardware. Right. Um, so Java, in a sense, is or the JVM, in a sense, is a, I guess it is a virtual machine, Java virtual right, machine, right. but it's it's not quite the same as Docker in that um, it it doesn't virtualize as completely what the what the runtime environment is of your software. So right, I yeah, Docker. I guess it got announced or invented in a lightning talk. Oh really? At a <laughs> yeah, there was a PyCon, the Python conference, where uh, the the speaker uh, who ended up becoming the CTO of Docker the business. Uh, demoed this uh, technology uh, running a Docker container in a lightning talk, which is supposed to be under five minutes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine then, seeing that and trying to understand everything that's going on under the hood and that.
0: I'll, I'll try to dig up a, a link <laughs> to that video on YouTube because I'm sure it's there and add it on the show notes. But <laughs> nice. it's pretty mind-blowing to think about the backstory of the tools you are just describing. For an audience that might not know about maybe the the difference between what Puppet, Ansible, etc. these tools are that you describe uh, having used in the past and using currently, what's what's kind of the distinction between those tools? Why, why might somebody use one of those tools today that they might uh, have used a different one previously?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one of the reasons why you might use some of the different tools, well, I guess it comes down to probably what's the most heavily adopted and what's kind of the easiest to use. So right now when you compare certain tools, uh, such as like uh, Puppet and Ansible, I think it comes down to just the support they have, the kind of ecosystem, what other people have adopted. And I think when you're working in, uh, especially a build and release role, and probably if you're working in any developer role specifically, I would imagine JavaScript more than anything libraries, and things are changing so fast. And so you wanna stay on top of like what other people are working on. You don't wanna work on a deprecated product. Um, I haven't really used Puppet in quite a while, mainly because we just found that we could write all of our configuration in less amount of lines in Ansible, and so it was just easier for us to manage. Uh, If you could do the same code in less amount of lines and it's more readable, um, it's just going to be easier to manage. So uh, that's why we had transitioned to that. Um, I think, so from the perspective of a user, if you're going to try to uh, encapsulate all of your dependencies or be able to manage all of your dependencies you want to try to find the simplest tool for the job. I mean, even beyond that, you're probably just trying to do that no matter what kind of software you're trying to write. Um, and so there's different ways to solve that. And uh, in the end, I think the important piece is just making sure that your environment when you're deving is the same as your CI environment, the same as your QA environment, staging, production. So whatever tool can really help you do that is probably the best tool for the job. Um, and that's kind of the craze around containers uh, is because it's an easy way to do that. You can encapsulate your, your code as well as all of the dependencies for your code. Stuff that you would normally install on your actual computer itself can be installed on this image, and then that image can be shared across all these different computers. So if you needed to update a version of Python or add a new dependency, um, you're more than likely going to be able to push it to that image, and as long as everybody has that image, it's going to be the same on everybody's computer.
0: You mentioned that there are certain software environments or or destinations where you guys are building software to be run that are not amenable to being containerized or Dockerized. For example, iOS or uh, desktop environments, mimicking those environments isn't enough for, I guess, guaranteeing the quality of your software. any any nasty war stories about the the disjunction between <laughs> someone what works on someone's laptop and what doesn't work on oh, a customer's man. laptop?
1: I mean just uh I, I've been in positions before where all of the VMs that we managed in CI were like manually modified and so nobody knew what was installed on any of those things. And uh I mean just when you've got a release that's ready to go out and you don't have an environment that you can really rely on um, and you've got a lot of people breathing down your throat, it can be it can be very, very um, interesting to say the least <laughs> to make sure they do everything right. But I can't think of anything off the top of my head that stands out as like uh, a big specific issue more than anything else, just like the, just the teeth grinding you do when you're solving the same problem over and over. You're like, oh, this environment's out of sync with this environment okay, yum, install this, okay, yum, install this, all right, build this, build this, and you're like, all right, cool, it's everything's in sync, we're good, and then developer updates a new dependency, and then this gets out of sync again, you're like, no! (laughs) Um, So I'd say uh, more than anything else, uh, uh, like I said, for for me, going through not knowing anything with software development, I learned kind of the hard way with uh, with different things. And so I inherited a a build environment at my first build build engineering position where everything was manually modified. And so I was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Like, I can't imagine everybody out there is just doing things through the UI and clicking around to get VMs to be cloned and things like that. So I think just because of necessity, I had uh, figured out or started looking online for other people who have solved it. Uh, One thing I should definitely mention is I think um, what's important for anybody who's working in software, and I guess it can relate to anywhere in life, is like try to see if somebody else has solved your problem. More than likely, if you Google it, somebody has solved your problem. And if somebody hadn't solved your problem, I would imagine you probably didn't search for it correctly. As a po- I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're you know creating some brand new algorithm that hasn't been invented yet for compression or something like that, sure, maybe you're not going to be able to find that online. But trying to integrate, or at least for my job, trying to integrate Jenkins with something like or Git and Jira, somebody's probably already solved it. And you may think that you could do it better writing it yourself. um, But uh, it can be difficult as well.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of Jenkins, the very popular open source uh, CI runner, uh, what do you, what do you think the future of Jenkins is? Like there, there are alternatives. There, there are third party uh, vendors you can pay. Uh, who offer a web UI similar to Jenkins. Uh, but uh, I'm curious, I'm curious what, you, what you think might be the future when it comes to test runners and uh, CI hosting.
1: Yeah, sure, so it seems like over the years the trend has been even beyond CI hosting just like with VMs themselves they have been going towards a hosted solution. And so like a clear example is the success of AWS um, and I mean, uh, th- that's like a perfect example. Whereas, I mean, I recall having our own data center for all of our own VMs, even physical servers at my old IT positions. And I couldn't imagine doing that anymore. Um, I would imagine the same will probably... Pro- and it's, it is happening with CI as well. So there's other solutions out there for... Specifically for mobile, uh, there didn't used to be a lot of good solutions. But because of that, there's been a lot more now. So a good example would be like Buddy Build for iOS... Uh, Apple just bought them I think yeah. a year ago
0: I think they're now shut down oh where, really where they previously supported both Android yes. and iOS yes they got acquired by Apple and I think they shut it down entirely as a service so oh okay there there are vendors like CircleCI and TravisCI who also similarly offer uh, iOS macOS builds but Yep. It's interesting you mentioned Buddy Bill because there are no more.
1: <laughs> and so there that's the other thing, too. There are a lot of solutions out there, that, but I feel like a lot of them that I've done the research on, at least, are more tailored at solving one particular slice of the pie because there's so many different applications you can build and there's so many different ways you can do it. So Jenkins is kind of the Swiss Army knife. It can kind of do everything, but it can't really do anything that well, at least in 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 my Opinion, And I say that because, not because it's not a a well-made tool, but it's just, it can do so many different things. And it's kind of like, kind of like Pearl, I guess. You can probably get it to do what you want, but not everybody's going to write it the same way. So it's very difficult uh, if you have a large organization all writing different things to be able to manage it very well. Um, uh, But, so I'd say, I think the trend is going to continue on with that route. That being said, there's many, many organizations that want to host it themselves. Uh, I think they want to be able to have the control over things. um, And and so from that perspective, I can imagine Jenkins is going to continue to live on. They have adapted as well. So they have Jenkins Pipeline Syntax now, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, Basically allows you to store your CI configuration as code with your repo, version it, all that good stuff. Um, Prior to that, there were other templating solutions. Netflix has a really nice plugin called the job DSL plugin, uh, which basically allows you to have the old freestyle jobs in Jenkins, but configured in templates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked pretty well uh, as well.
0: So when it comes to Jenkins, for example, but there are other ways to do this, how does Jenkins cope with the fact that your builds might not be on uh, what Jenkins calls a Jenkins slave? like? What if you need to drive builds on another system? Like, let's say you uh, use you have Jenkins on AWS and you want to run builds on Azure or or on Google Cloud. Like, is there is there uh, a big leap that exists between using uh, self-hosted Jenkins and driving builds on some other hosting provider or yeah, build so target?
1: That's a good question, actually. Um, so Jenkins has a hosted solution as well. Um, I think it's their cloud bees. The cloud is the parent organization, so they have a hosted solution. Um, you can host it yourself as well. You can uh, they have it. They have a Docker image published for it, so you can run it in uh, some sort of orchestration uh, with like Kubernetes or something like that if you want. Um, we run it ourselves. We have an Ansible template managing a VM that has Jenkins installed onto it. Um, but specifically for like Azure and and Amazon, so. Jenkins has a lot of plugins that allow you to have your slaves basically they treat it like a cloud so you can have your slave cloud environment on Azure or Amazon or any provider you could probably think of there's probably a plugin for it Uh, there are some premier or I guess uh, officially supported plugins so if you have the enterprise version uh, they have I believe an enterprise supported uh, like Amazon integration so you can have slaves on Amazon Um, I'm pretty familiar with the EC2 plugin, which is the open source version of it, uh, which allows you to have your slaves running on EC2. It's pretty nice. You can basically elastically spin up slaves. So if you have a job that needs to run against some particular uh, slave, if none exists, it'll create it for you. It'll run the job. And then if it's idle for a certain amount of time, it'll terminate it for you. Um, We also use uh, vSphere. So we have uh, we use Mac Stadium as our provider for Macs, and um, they're running VMware under the hood. So there's a VSphere integration with Jenkins. It's called the VSphere plugin. Uh, it works very similarly to the EC two plugin. so that can allow you to integrate with these different providers, which makes it pretty nice because if you need to build out different you know products for desktop, for mobile, for web, you're probably doing it in different cloud env- potentially different cloud environments. Uh, potentially in drastically different ways. And so having uh, one thing to be able to manage can sometimes make things simpler. For us, we've found that to be the case thus far.
0: Are there any kind of broad, general, clever hacks that you can share with our audience that might be curious about best practices of, for example, you described using Mac Stadium for doing um, iOS builds, but maybe are there ways to make a build target uh, a physical, you know, phone that you might have on site, or uh, are there clever ways to take things that are maybe being built remotely and build them on an ad hoc basis? Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: so there's there's definitely a lot of tools out there that you can use. For example, there's AWS Device Farm, which can allow you to test on actual devices. Uh, You can also plug in your own devices. So this is kind of the advantage of running something like Jenkins on site. Uh, You can kind of plug and play however you want to do it. You can use uh, an external provider for something. You can actually plug in physical devices. Uh, But I'd say from my perspective, kind of best practices are uh, doing everything you can to make sure that you have a clean environment that you're gonna run your tests on. Um, If you don't have that, I don't care how good your product is. I don't care how good your tests are. If you don't have the dependencies installed properly, you're not gonna be able to run your tests. Or if this, you want to be able to have trust, you, you want your developers to have trust in their tests and in the environment that those tests are being run on. And if you can't provide them that, then they're just going to figure out ways of bypassing it, not running their tests, pushing their code in without tests. And that's pretty pretty bad situation to be in. So an easy way to do that uh, if you are in the Docker world or a container world is you can run your builds in a container and then throw away that container at the end of the build. This will do the best that you can to ensure that it's a clean environment, all your dependencies are installed at that time, you run your tests, you throw it away, so the next build doesn't reuse that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you're on, you know, macOS, uh, what we do with, uh, with VMware is we'll actually revert back to snapshot at the end of every build. And so then it's at least starting at the same, uh, in the same environment, in the same, uh, in the same manner. Uh, the other thing I'd say is it's important as well, like I would mentioned before, to have your development environment for the developers to be the same as possible as CI. Um, if you have a clean CI environment, that's great, but if it's different from your developer's environment, they're eventually going to run into a time where a test, you know, passes locally and fails in CI, yeah. and <laughs> if that happens, you don't want to be the guy that, at least I don't like being that guy where it's like, no, it's your problem. It's like, mm, it's everybody's uh, problem, <laughs> and trying to figure that out in such a way so that the I mean, I like talking to people, don't get me wrong, but I hate interrupting people, and I like to make developers as productive as possible, and um, not having them have to come to me and ask me why this test failed, um, is I, I prefer to not have that conversation if possible.
0: Yeah, I think by, by and large, it's pretty well known among the software engineering, engineering community that... Builds should be stateless. In fact, application servers should be pretty stateless. Right. Uh, this is a problem that people get bit oftentimes in their first couple of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, are there techniques or ways to help prevent builds from becoming stateful? Like, is there? Is there? I guess that happens naturally if you reset the build state after every build. Uh, yeah, but I, I think pe- people manage to get around them sometimes, <laughs> you know? Like and they're disastrous when they do.
1: It's very true. So I mean there's just you know, the best practices in my opinion are putting as much of your configuration into code as possible. Don't allow developers, in my opinion, a developer should never need to SSH into a CI machine. If they are asking for that, then that's probably a sign that something's not right. They shouldn't I mean, it's not that like Occasionally, a developer may need to troubleshoot something, but if that's a frequent ask or something like that, they should have an environment that they could reproduce it much easier than going to CI. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, hopefully, that answers your question.
0: One one of the it does. One of the things that I've observed about build configuration as code is that the build configuration as code becomes code itself and quite complicated sometimes, and so. Uh, engineer, engineer might be helping with their build, sees their build fail on production, uh, not on production, excuse me, but on the build server, and sometimes the build configuration as code is so complicated it's hard to interpret how to reproduce the build locally right. so that they can start really grilling... What so you bring the up a good
1: example or a, a good point as well so i mean i've uh, and this kind of comes back to jenkins being able to you can kind of do it anyway and with jenkins pipeline being so new it's even hard to see good examples of complex pipelines um i feel like what what i find that works the best is trying to keep your pipeline as simple as possible and if you're using jenkins pipeline use declarative uh, as much as possible declarative is basically using their domain specific language and, try, and and they're trying to guide you to write it a certain way to make it easier for other people to understand. I think an anti-pattern is if you are generating a build and you're doing, like, all these different calls, let's say it's a Windows build and you're doing all these different batch calls and you're setting environment variables and doing all of these things, throw that into an actual build script that you can run on your local machine as a developer, and then call that same build script in CI. Maybe you need to do some things differently, add a flag like for dash CI or something like that. But it's important that you can run that same script on your local machine and produce the same output so that you can diagnose issues um, uh, as much as possible. You should never have your build only be able to ever be built in CI. Um, I've seen it many many times I've troubleshot them more times than I'd like to admit and um, it's interesting to me because I feel like whoever worked on that they probably had to try to get it to working on their local machine first and they actually did more work uh, for somebody else down the road by not putting that into just one script that they can actually execute themselves
0: So Ria you've held both individual contributor roles and management roles Uh, what's kind of What's kind of the difference, and, and when you've made the change from one to the other, what was kind of your thought process, and yeah, how, did, how have you ended up back as an individual contributor, and what are, you, yeah, sure. what are you enjoying about it?
1: Sure. So when I was younger, um, I didn't really know that there were two paths. Um, I, uh, I just never was educated on that, to be honest. So I thought that the natural progression from, for an engineer was to go into management. I didn't realize that there was even an IC path. And so very early on, I I saw that I had an opportunity to grow into management and um, didn't think twice about it because I didn't really realize that there was any other way to go. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I had realized that actually there are two separate paths. Some companies make it more apparent than other companies, I feel like, Um, but hopefully at any company that somebody's working at, specifically for a software engineer, there should be those two separate paths. And you can get, uh, you know, the same kind of enjoyment and success in either path. Um, And there's just, you know, different pains, different stresses that are associated with each. Um, And I feel like uh, as a manager, uh, at least from my perspective, my focus was on making my team as productive as possible and making sure that they weren't blocked, that they were happy and that we were, you know, doing everything that we want to do. But I think most importantly, we were just having fun. That was when we were the most productive Um, and kind of letting it be as much of a democracy as possible, not micromanaging um, and I had a lot of enjoyment, to be honest, with uh, with managing. Um, but I think uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get back into being an IC is because uh, when I was fresh out of college, I didn't really actually... So when I transitioned to being a build engineer, I was only a build engineer for, I think, my LinkedIn will show. I don't remember the exact time frame. I want to say it was probably about a year, maybe a little bit longer. And then I moved into being a lead. And so I never really got to progress as an individual contributor. I find what I find the most fun for myself is just technical challenges, uh, doing technical kind of work. I I like people managing as well. I think I'm good at that. Uh, But I wanted to give that another shot. And so I was happy to find that Uh, I did have that opportunity as well Uh, I may go back into management later on in my life I definitely want to keep that door open Um, but I'm finding enjoyment in being an individual contributor and I guess one other thing I'd say is that um, I thought it was more like a line drawn in the sand like individual contributor you know should not have leadership skills perhaps or should not act as a manager shouldn't tell their team what to do but in the end it's kind of a gray area in between IC and, and management I feel like um you know, as, a, as an IC, you can still be a tech lead. You can still give recommendations. You can still have leadership and those qualities. And that's still good qualities to have in an IC. So um, I think that both paths can be very enjoyable for somebody. But I think the one thing I'd like to drive home is that there are those two paths. And um, not to say that if you chose one, you can't switch over. But um, if I were to look back and do things differently, I would have not to say that I would have done anything differently. But I would have liked to have known that I could have gone two different paths.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I realize that it may have been a while since you've been in an environment like I'm about to describe, but let's say you're a shop without CI, um, or you're a shop that has been working on software for a target platform like iOS that's difficult to set up CI for. Um, what do you What do you recommend be a team like that's first steps? to get CI in place so that they can go home and sleep well at night?
1: <laughs> sure. So the, the number one thing I'd say is if you're a team that's building products and doesn't have CI, look into CI as soon as you can. The longer you wait, the harder it's going to be. And uh, try to find the right tool that that fits well for you. Um, It's going to be different for different organizations. Like I'd mentioned, Jenkins is something that I'm pretty familiar with and that I've used before. But if I were working on a very tight-knit, small team that was just building an iOS application, I'd probably look at a CI system that could work quite well for us. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, finding something that could be as frictionless as possible, that allows us to be as productive as possible. Um, What I find, what I found in my career that sometimes what will happen is Somebody be like, okay, I need to get CI going. All right, let me just get like a Mac Mini and let me just set that up. I'll install all the software on here. Cool, I'll get it going. Uh, one important thing to remember is it's 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 not just getting it set up and running it, but it's also maintainability. So that's where configuration as code is really really powerful because it may be a little bit more work up front, but then when you got to bump a dependency, like if you got to change Python to be you know, 2.7.13 to whatever the latest 2.7 release is, or hopefully you're not on 2.7 anymore. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's much easier once you've got it in code uh, versus if you're installing it manually, because sure, it might be easier for me to install, you know, Python right now, just double-clicking the exe and installing it. But then, you know, six months down the road when I'm trying to not worry about the Python installation anymore, and I'm just trying to worry about running my unit tests and on my local machine, I've updated my Python dependency, well, I want that to be easy for every other environment as well, and so doing that kind of work up front can just make it easier down the road, in my opinion.
0: So let's say I've already bought the Mac Mini, (laughs) given I have a Mac Mini or a MacBook Pro or whatever my my Mac device of choice is, uh, is doing as you do, which is vSphere, uh, the way to go for somebody, is that an option for a non-enterprise software shop?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. I think OS X or Mac OS has a native virtualization hypervisor that you can use. So you could actually just run a VM using that. There's also other stuff out there like VirtualBox. I've never used VirtualBox, which is an open source tool for virtualization. I've never used VirtualBox for Mac OS uh, guests, but I it might work. Um, so you don't have to use a proprietary solution out there um and to be honest if you didn't want to you probably don't even necessarily have to use a vm though it is nice to encapsulate things in a vm um but i think you know having it in ansible or puppet or something like that so that it's reproducible so that if i were to share it with a new developer who's joining my team he can have that same environment that's pretty important so um if i were to give a recommendation if you've got the mac mini already try to get it running on a vm whether it's vmware or virtualbox or OS's native hypervisor Uh, there's probably a great article out there who can show you how to kind of do that and if you were to do that just remember it's going to make it easier because inevitably you're going to have people leaving your team you're going to have people joining your team and uh, trying to make it as easy as possible so to accommodate those things uh, is the best in my opinion. You don't want to have the guy who configured your build server and then he leaves and then you're like, "Oh my gosh, what do we do?" Yeah, how do I've we reproduce seen this? That happen Many times.
0: God, that's a disaster. <laughs> for I mean, sure. That's a, of the, of all the things you're describing, those are these are all solutions to that nightmare scenario. So check those out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess one final question I've got for you is another question for about hacks. <laughs> like sure. maybe maybe really Quick best practices that people might not be aware of. Um, doing a lot of builds generates a lot of build artifacts. Right. And I, our audience might be familiar with what you might generate as an artifact of your build. For example, the actual uh, you know executable of your software, but also your uh, build logs, your test logs, um, all of your error di- mm-hmm. diagnostics if For your build sure. fails. Are there best practices that you can recommend to people about how to best make use of the fact that their builds leave artifacts and those can be very useful for uh, potentially future problems that might arise? (laughs) Uh. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I I think it's it's critical to archive as much as, as possible for the logs that happen with your builds as possible. Um, So like, you know, if it's a PHP application, which I used to be pretty familiar with, um, you know, everything from Apache's logs to any error logs on the machine, MySQL's logs, any kind of logs that are related to the application uh, or the tests that you're working on, archiving those with the job are critical because uh, from a developer's perspective, a lot of times they won't realize that the CI run is read until much later. And then when they go into it, especially if you've got an environment that gets wiped out at the end, if you aren't archiving these kinds of logs, it may be impossible for a developer to troubleshoot or to try to reproduce that issue. Um, And even beyond that, uh, what I find that happens more often than not is it's not a consistent issue. A test may fail because it's flaky or because of a race condition, and those ones can be very difficult to troubleshoot. If it happens one in a hundred times and you don't have the logs that are associated with it you got to run that build 100 more times to try to figure that out. Uh, So having those logs is pretty important. And I think thinking about that when you're setting up the CI job is important. A lot of times people won't think about it and they'll forget it. And then you won't realize you needed it until you need it. So uh, thinking about that up front uh, can be very, very helpful.
0: Any any Jenkins plugins we can point our audience to? Uh,
1: just the native. Uh, I think it's just the native functionality to archive artifacts uh, will do it for you. And then uh, the only thing you got to do with that is you got to. So if it's like not inside of the workspace for the job, you have to copy it into there. So if you had an Apache log that's in like var dub 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 or some or var log whatever, um, just copying that to the workspace and then archiving it is pretty important. Uh, What we used to do as well is we truncate all the logs at the beginning of the run if our environments weren't being reset every run so that we weren't getting like, (laughs) we did have a time where the logs weren't getting truncated. And so all of a sudden you'd have a log that was like, you know, a 500 meg file and it was hard to tell what was the actual error in this run because you're matching up timestamps. So Mm -hmm. making sure that the log is just for this build is also pretty helpful. Fair enough. Uh, but the native functionality in Jenkins will allow you to archive it. Um, all you got to do is, if you're in Jenkins pipeline, I think the the DSL is just uh, archive artifacts.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess there's probably also a way to not just archive them to disk on your Jenkins node, but to back it up to uh, remote file storage like an S three or a Google Cloud Storage. Yeah,
1: for sure, for sure. So I think that's another thing as well. So wherever you end up publishing your builds to, publish your artifact or your build logs there as well. So uh, we use Artifactory, and so we want to publish those things there. Similarly, if you're building something where, uh, like a any application where you've got symbols files as well, so that you're trying to if you're trying to do debugging, make sure you publish those as well, for so sure. you can actually debug <laughs> your builds. <laughs> fair
0: enough. Fair enough. Well. Uh, I'm all out. (laughs) Ray, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.